0: All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland. Our guest tonight is Hep Aldridge. He's a certified scuba diver, cave diver, and amateur archaeologist whose main area of interest is pre-Columbian cultures of the America. He has been part of archaeological expeditions to Mexico and Honduras, making discoveries that have been reported in National Geographic. That is some real stuff. Hep, thanks for being on Radio Wasteland. My pleasure. So, you know, my, my first thing that leads to here is i i think a lot of us want to eventually know like oh did you see something amazing down there but you know the first question that pops to mind to me is what led to what was it an interest in this pre-columbian stuff that led you to do the scuba diving or was it scuba diving that led
1: you to this stuff (laughs) that's 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 a question that's going to take a little time we got an hour. <laughs> um, Perfect. Get, it, get it done in an hour. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, but I, I'll try and keep it uh, succinct. Yeah. Um, I, I started getting interested in um, <clears throat> pre-Columbian cultures when I lived in New Mexico. Um, my father was with NASA, and he was working on the Apollo program in the early days. And they were testing the launch escape system at White Sands Missile Range. And we moved from East Texas to Las Cruces, New Mexico. And I spent my junior and senior year uh, in high school out there. While I was there, um, and I've always been interested in treasure. I mean, what, what guy or gal isn't interested in hidden treasure or buried treasure or stolen treasure or you know right. whatever. Um, And of course, the Southwest is just full of all kinds of stories about um, bank robberies and train robberies and money and gold that's been hidden by the robbers because they couldn't get away with it and they never came back for it. So that that kind of got my interest in in the the treasure aspect. While I was living in New Mexico, Las Cruces is only 45 miles north of El Paso. And it's on a basically what has been for many hundreds of years, a direct route out of Mexico. Uh, I started hearing about uh, legends of uh, treasure being uh, taken out of Mexico by the Aztecs. Mm -hmm. You know, Montezuma's treasure before the conquistadors could get to it. And I was like, I've never heard of the Aztecs to speak of. So I started doing some research. The treasure is what caught my my interest, and I started doing some research, and I learned a fair amount about the Aztecs and the you know the fact that they were an indigenous culture down there and quite large, and uh, they were a very rich culture. Uh, lots of gold, lots of silver, all the kinds of things that a person might be interested in treasure would want to know about. And then I learned about the the ransom of Montezuma. And the fact that the uh, natives or the, the Aztec people had spirited out a lot of his treasure before giving it to him because he was killed prior to, you know, the treasure being delivered. And it just so happens that stories that I heard out there had them coming right through my area, right through Las Cruces, going through the, across the Oregon mountains, which is just to the, which are just to the north and then further up into the four corners area of the southwest. So that really got my interest, the fact that the, they had a lot of treasure and the fact that this came they came through my area, I started doing more research about it and that's when I realized that the Aztecs were only one small segment of the population in the Mexico and Central America. And I learned about the uh, Maya, the Olmec, the Toltec, Zapotec, Mixtec, I mean there's a whole range of of civilizations down there or groups down there that all made up this whole uh, area of, of central America and Mexico. And they all had your unique things about them. Um, And -hmm. one of the things that really started getting me even more interested is when I started seeing the architecture and the building and what they had done because you have to, Remember that this, all of them, were a Neolithic culture, which means they were a new Stone Age. Um, they didn't have metal tools to speak of. The Maya didn't. Um, they didn't have the wheel, and they didn't have beasts of burden. So basically, they built uh, cities like Tikal and Chichen Itza and Calakmul. Uh, um, you know, fantastic cities. Um, yeah without metal tools you know and i was like how could they do that because they're still standing right so that really then got me interested in the archaeology part of things um and i continued my reading and my my uh research um and really felt fell in love with it um when I was, uh, Sorry, I my last duty station assigned when I was in the military at Homestead Air Force Base. And that's when I started hearing about the sunken ships off the coast of Florida that were Spanish fleets that were bringing treasure from South America, Central America, um, take, bringing up the coast of Florida, and then turning and going heading for Spain. And the number of, of ships that had wrecked and the amount of treasure that supposedly was on them that got me all excited about that. And I got certified, um, uh, uh, back in 1969 in, uh, while I was down at Homestead and spent the next two years diving some in the Keys and meeting some extraordinary, um, people, uh, treasure hunters basically the icons of treasure hunting on the, on the East coast of the United States anyway. So, you know, what is the ratio of
0: I'm, I'm curious as to people's motivations into getting into treasure hunting. You know, one of them, of course, is I'm going to get rich. You know, the other is I'm just sort of really interested in the, in the research and, and this is sort of a fun way to spend my time. You know, what is the ratio of treasure hunter to treasures actually discovered? Um, I mean, is there a fair amount of treasure actually being discovered?
1: Yes, actually there is, and that's hmm. directly related to modern technology. Interesting. Um, as diving technology has improved uh, and more, more tools are available to those that are doing the underwater research, uh, whether it's magnetometers, uh, metal detectors, um, you know, a number of things, um, more is being found. But, for instance, um, and I'm – Going into sh- shameless self promotion, uh, my the book that That's I wrote. What we're all about. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the, the, the book <laughs> that I wrote. That was the, wrote, f-
2: the first you know proposed name for the show was shameless self promotion, but then Chauncey right. was like, well, well, what about Radio Wasteland? So you know,
1: <laughs> I, I like them both. It, it's yeah, in the yeah. spirit. Of the, <laughs> there you go. Of the thing. Um, I delve into a treasure fleet that was lost off the coast of Florida here in 1715. Mm-hmm. Um, there were 11 ships that were part of it that left um, Havana. And when the fleets would come from South America, Central America, to head back to Spain, they followed the coast of Florida up actually north, probably somewhere in South Carolina, before they would hang a hard right and head, head towards Europe. One of the things that they were always told, uh, which I learned, I did not know, is that when they were coming up the coast of Florida, they should always keep the coast in view. So they always had to be within uh, eyesight of of the coast of Florida. That's pretty darn close. And uh, the 1715 fleet uh, was made up of 11 ships. Well, on the night of July 30th, 1715, a hurricane was brewing in the Caribbean, moving this way. And about 2 a.m. on, july thirty first um, it hit, and out of the eleven ships, ten were sunk. so a hurricane was coming from the the southwest, excuse me the southeast, and ships were traveling up the coast of Florida within sight of land, so you have to understand that they got blown aground in pretty shallow water, and mm-hmm. I would say probably in the past. Five to ten years, treasure significant treasure is being found along the coast of Florida, um, in twenty feet of water or less. Wow! So uh, that kind of talks about the treasure and where it's at. Now, finding it and making the living off of um, it—that's a—that's a whole different ball of wax. Right. Because in the state of Florida, we get into some really interesting political implications to it, if you will. That's what I was Jim. wondering. It's like, what's the law say about
0: that? Is there a point in time where, where ancient discoveries become public domain, for, for lack of a better word? Where, no. or, or do you own it when you find it? Like, oh, these are my doubloons now. You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know how does that
1: work? I mean, is there no government right, claim uh, to it? or In the state of Florida.
3: So it's um, different from you know, state, the to state. state
1: waters. Are three miles offshore. Hmm. The territorial waters then go from three miles to uh, twelve miles, and then you get into international waters. If you find anything within the three-mile limit off the state of off the coast, twenty percent of what you find automatically goes to the state. Okay, that's. Right off the top, they get their pick of whatever it is now here's, here' here's the kicker, and one of the things that I address in the book, which I just really it kind of sticks in my craw, and there are a lot of people out there that will not agree with me, which is fine. Um, the waters the the ocean the bottom was leased by the state of Florida to private individuals who are now charging treasure hunters to work portions of the bottom of the ocean. And so you have to pay, um, the last time I checked it, it was somewhere around $2,500 a season to work a section of the bottom where you think there might be treasure. Really? And that's, that's the key. Where there might be treasure, so let me throw this out there. So Florida, Florida has taken their three
0: miles of underwater coast expanse, and they have leased it out to individuals. So now these people are paying Florida for the right to charge other people. Right. That's basically... But here's the I, kicker. I don't
1: even see how that's allowed. But sorry, I, go ahead. I know. I, well, it's like I said, it kind of sticks in my craw. Yeah. Yeah. But. Totally. Here's, here's the kicker, it's primarily leased to one person. Oh. Hmm. And for the longest time, that person was Mel Fisher. And I'm I think most people would remember yeah. the name of, uh, he actually started out in California uh, teaching scuba diving. Hmm. And he was brought to Florida by a group that I almost had the opportunity to dive for, which was the Real Eight Corporation. And they were located down uh, here in Cape Canaveral for a while, but then also down in the Sebastian area. And um, the person who started the company was Kip Wagner, and he was a construction uh, man. And he started finding uh, real silver coins up and down the beach, beachcombing back in the late 50s, uh, mid to late 50s. And he realized after throwing some back in the water and watching them skip across the top, that that was silver, that was treasure. And so he started a company and it was called Real Eight. And he and about six or seven other individuals went together to form this company. They realized that they needed some additional help and they were looking, I'm not exactly sure how Mel Fisher came into it, but somehow they knew of Mel who had a dive shop out in California and they talked him into moving to Florida and becoming part of real aid, which he did, but then broke away in, from what I understand, not too pleasant terms and went on his own and then went on down to work the keys and discover the Atosha, which is one of the largest treasures that's been found um, off, the coast of, off the coast of Florida. Um, but he uh-huh. worked a deal and got a lease, uh, from sound, down around port St. Lucie all the way up to Sebastian, which is a pretty extensive area. And that section is known as the treasure coast. And the reason it's known as the treasure coast is in that area is where the 1715 fleet went down. His daughter recently sold the lease to another individual or a company who are now selling leases or putting out leases for different sections of the, of the bottom um, as we speak and are making the money off of it. Ah, like I said- Classic pay, regulatory capture. Say you go out- American way. And you pay $2,500. Right. And you go out and you find, you take your boat, your divers, your time, your effort, And you find $100,000 worth of gold. Right. Okay. If it's just gold, so basically you come in, you say, hey, I found $100,000 worth of gold. I'm rich. Well, state of Florida gets 20% of that. Okay. So now I've got $80,000 worth of gold. Well, unfortunately, the person that you paid the money to to work the lease gets 50% of whatever you find.
3: What? Wow! How was okay. that at all? So <laughs>
1: you pay you pay twenty percent to Florida, you pay fifty percent of the eighty percent that you you have. Right. So you do all the work, and you wind up with forty percent of what you find. Yeah. Yeah, that does not uh, seem. <laughs> yeah. So, but there are a lot of people that do it. And well, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. What what choice do you have if it's something
3: yeah. that you
0: love to do? I
1: mean, right, what choice? Right. Um, and there are a lot of people that do it for a living. Um, I'm, I'm friends with a, a number of people who are diving right now and are mm-hmm. finding gold. Um, but the, that, that always struck me as being wrong. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, so when, when I decided, when I retired and I decided that I was going to start a treasure hunting company and I really delved into it, I was like. Um, I don't know if you can cuss on this program, but I, somebody threw the bullshit flag and I said, no, 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 I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to put my money and my time and my team and, you know, out there to do this. Hmm. Um, but I had an interest in it and I've studied it. I've studied the fleet. I, you know, uh, out of the 11 ships, one survived 10 sank. Only six have been found and identified. Wow. That means there's four more ships out there that have been not been found and they were all laden with treasure. What were the other ones, the
0: value of, you know, on the average, the other ones that were discovered? Well, are it, we looking like
1: 100,000 or are we looking like? Oh, millions? no, you're, no you're, you're, you're talking anywhere from, say, 50,000 to the hundreds of thousands. I see. And here's, here's the thing. When the ships sank, they ran aground, which means the hurricane blew them towards land And as it did, it ripped the bottom off of them. Ah. And so they moved a a significant distance as they were sinking. And so the treasure is not just located in one area where the ship sank. It's strewn across the bottom in what's known as a debris field. So the treasure hunter has to go out and try and find a debris field. Um, And if you find one, and you use metal detectors and, and magnetometers and, you know, side scan sonar to try and find something that uh, gives you an indication that there's probably a wreck there, then you have to go down and you have to start working the site. Um, You know, know, speaking of the technology
0: of this stuff, this is a a statement I've made on this show many times before, and that is I am both hugely impressed and very disappointed in human technology. You know, Part of me is like, oh, I can't believe that we're capable of doing this. And then the other part of me is, oh, I can't believe we're not capable of doing this. You know, it seems to me like we we should be able to discover that pretty easily. I mean, what but this is my sci-fi sitting on the couch watching TV attitude, not my I mean, I have no real world, you know. So what kind of technology are we looking at here and what makes it so difficult to find? You would think that something like gold or something, we would have some way of laser picking that up or, yeah,
1: well, forgive my ignorance, but uh, no, no, not at all. I mean, I mean, there's so many people that think, well, why, you know, why can't you just detect it? You're right. Well, if, if you're on the bottom with a underwater metal detector, you can detect it, Hmm. but the bottom's pretty darn big. So (laughs) where do do you look? And that's where, um, side scan sonar, which actually can give you a picture of the bottom uh, and what's on it. And using a magnetometer, uh, which comes uh, into play, because what a magnetometer does, you, t- you tow it behind your boat, and it measures the magnetic field of the earth. Okay, now we're getting to some what I call cool science, I think, because yeah. the, the magnetic field of the earth is actually mapped. And you know, you, there's a chart that you can go online and find that shows you magnetic reading of any part of the earth that you want to know. So what you do is you'll pull your magnetometer, knowing what your parameters are for where you're looking, and you look for any aberrations or any uh, blips, if you will. Now the only thing a magnetometer will do, it will detect ferrous metals, Okay, it won't detect gold, it won't detect silver. Right. What's ferrous? Magnetic, so, or, like yes, iron based. Magnetic, magnetic uh, iron based. So, what you look for, what you're, what you're towing for, um, as it's called, mowing the grass, is cannon, anchors, fittings, mm-hmm. ship fittings. All of those will show up if there's any kind of a concentration. Right. So, you, you try and find that market GPS. And then that's where you start looking, thinking, okay, if there's cannon there, if there's anchors there, if there's ship fittings that are iron, um, then that's a, that's a good place to say, okay, a ship sank here now, it's time to get busy. Right?
2: So in, in, in the 300 years since the 1715 thing, like, presumably other ships have gone down in this area as well, right?
1: Um, or, or no? Yeah, yeah, yes,
2: <laughs> yes there, yeah, there are some.
1: I, won't I get
0: say what you're a lot. saying. Does that mean? Does that mean that the debris field can get confusing and you can constantly be finding wrecks of no value? Absolutely.
3: absolutely. Is that what you
1: were getting at, Kara? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Absolutely. And but you don't know that until you find a debris field, right? And you dive it. So here okay. you've 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 towed this magnetometer say for a a week, and you find this debris field. You go down, you dive it for another four or five days before you can even determine if, in fact, it's something that you're looking for or if it's junk.
3: Right.
1: So there's you know, two weeks that you've spent fuel for your boat, time for your divers, you know, expenses that you have, and you wind up with, oh, that's a, that sank in 1968. right? No, but you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we found a mother the same, load of asbestos. right? <laughs> by the same token, I know people who have gone down in eight feet of water, right off the coast, right off the beach, in eight feet of water, where there's uh, concretions or, or rocks that are limestone, and have uncovered hundreds of thousands of dollars of gold coins. Wow. Uh, why? Because they got ripped out of the bottom, they got scattered. And the wave action over the 300 years that you were talking about, Kara, have moved it from where it went down toward land. I'm also, so it's,
3: it's
1: it's it's a process and it's very extensive. And that's why they call it treasure hunting and not treasure finding.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm go also ahead, curious go. about uh, the archaeological value of some of this stuff. I mean, obviously you've got gold, you've got silver, but I'm, Is is there stuff that you find that, like, you know, museums pay handsomely for? Is there stuff you find that's, like, of interest?
1: Sure. Uh, And let me tell you, one of the the biggest treasures that has not been found uh, from the 1715 fleet, I'll talk about that again, um, is the king's dowry. The king's dowry. Uh, King Philip of Spain, um, they had just gone through in 1715, they just finished, now I'm going to have to dig into it, of Succession. So Spain was kind of broke, and he needed (laughs) allies, and he needed money. So that's why he was uh, commissioning all these fleets to come from South America, Central America, to bring the treasure back to Spain. Plus, he was about to get married, a marriage of convenience to build allies, and his queen-to-be had, I don't know whether it was requested or the family required a huge dowry and it is reported to have been so large that it couldn't be carried on one ship. So it had to be carried on multiple ships. So now you're talking about uh, jewelry, uh, emeralds, uh, pearls, um, all kinds of uh, church-related artifacts, um, crucifixes, Mm -hmm. um, just a variety of things that yes, a, a museum would love to have. Um, yeah. and right now, um, that has not been found Interesting. that, that basically would be the mother load. If, if you were to start finding that. So, what about, you know, on, on the, an even more lesser
0: level, you know, what if you find a ship from, let's say the 1700s and there's all the kitchen, equipment? you know, something that's very blah, who cares? Is that the sort of thing that a museum would still want? You know, probably, probably. Oh, probably. Yeah. So pots and pans, original stuff, if, you know, from original. If, if, it,
1: if, it, if it lasted. Um, right. And that's the thing. Salt water is, is very, very unfriendly to any kind of metal other than gold. Right. When you mm. find gold in salt water that's been down there for 300 years, it looks like you just brought it right out of the jewelry store. Oh, really? <laughs> you fan the sand away huh. and... Shiny so gold is right there. There are no concretions built up on it. Salt water doesn't defect it, doesn't deteriorate it at all. It's just bright, shiny, take your breath away, gold. Oh, wow. Well, uh, that's so, like
2: the classic treasure hunting thing. It a, yeah, absolutely. The, that's the dream.
1: <laughs> yeah. Silver, yeah. on the other hand, um, as you probably yeah. know, if you have silver jewelry, will tarnish and, tarnish. and turn black. Yeah. Right. But it also will allow marine growth on it. In other words, so you wind up with a um, there was a a story a few years back about a a guy who was metal detecting on the beach down down south by Sebastian, which is I don't know, 30, 40 miles from now, not even 30, probably 25, 30 miles from here, and came across a rock that was in the waves and went around it, and a guy came behind him because there are lots of beach-going metal detectors. Now if you find something on the beach, it's yours. That's, but if you find something in the water, then all of a sudden the rules change. Anyway, the guy that was following him, and it was a basketball-sized rock, went across it with his metal detector. His metal detector went nuts, and it turned out to be a clump of 1,500 silver coins that had <laughs> glommed together with limestone and you know sea life into this mass. That's so and weird. he picked it up and bingo, you know, 1,500 uh-huh. coins. So
2: it's still at value, even though it was oh, you know, messed well, up
1: from all this stuff. It, it's, oh, yeah. it's easy to get concretions off of metal like that. I see. Yeah, you I know, see. Silver and once you, once you do, if you can see uh, mint marks on the coins uh, or visible uh, ways of identifying the size of the coin, uh, cobs, reals, uh, pieces of eight. Um, boom, the, the value goes up from the coin collector as well as from the, the treasure hunter. All right, well, we don't have much longer until we're going to take a break here. So
0: I, I got one question left about treasure hunting, Then I want to talk about some of the the potential for underwater cities and, and uh, stuff like that. But um, the, um, it seems like it's expensive to go hunting. It seems like uh, there are a lot of things in people's way, and the reward can be ex- incredibly high. So from that and the movie-watching culture that we all live in, um, do you have to guard your data? Um, do you have to be concerned when you're out there of, like, new-age pirates? Or, uh, you know, it, are there safety concerns like that?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes, there are. interesting And... Here's one of the other things to know about uh, treasure hunting on the coast of Florida. Um, say I decided, you know, screw this. I'm just going to go out and dive for treasure. I'm not going to pay anybody anything. I'm, I'm going to find it on my own. And I go out and I start diving and I happen to be diving on a site, you know, that a ship went down. They watch them. Oh, do they? Those, those areas are under surveillance. And... If you're found diving on a site without a a permit or without a, a lease, you can be fined, you can lose your boat, and you can go to jail or maybe get shot kind of, well, I don't, I'm kind
0: of making the parallels in my head here to the Pacific Northwest and stumbling across a pot farm when you're out hiking and you're all like, I do
1: not want to be here, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of different. The getting shot part is not quite as, as prevalent as, as winding up, you know, being prosecuted. Right. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's always a big concern. And, you know, it's, it's a reality. Wow. That is wild. All right. Uh, well, we're coming up on break here. You're listening to Hep
0: Aldridge. His website is hepaldridge.com. He's the author of Sunken Treasure, Lost World, and Sunken Treasure Revelations. And uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about more sunken treasure and maybe the possibility of some lost world. You're listening to Radio Waveland. All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland and our guest, Hep Aldridge. Uh, you can check him out at hepaldridge.com. He is the author of Sunken Treasure, Lost Worlds, as well as Sunken Treasure Revelations. And uh, guess what we're talking about? We're talking about Sunken Treasure right here with Hep Aldridge. Uh, Hep, before we talked a lot about treasure and and the process of trying to get it and stuff like that, but I think the number one question that everybody would want to know is Did you ever find something down there that you just went, holy crap, this is, you know, this is, this is the real deal. This is the real deal. Like this Um, is, um, you know, are because we see footage of potential underwater cities in uh, around Japan and some people say, okay, well, these monolithic things are actually carved into the rock by the ocean and some people say that's not possible. What about the circle and uh, Bimini Road and stuff like that, you know? Is there anything
1: down there that has made you go like holy crap I found something? I I can't say uh, say that I have uh necessarily. Um my diving has been um uh, you know fairly limited and and pretty much focused on you know the things that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um but I took a um uh, an expedition and I think it was in 95 Um, I got involved in an expedition that went to Mexico to take a look at uh, a site down there on the Candelaria River called El Tigre. And in Cortez's Chronicles, and now this is kind of not treasure, but uh, Tara, I think you ask about things that that museums would really go nuts over.
2: Yeah, the the archaeological. Yeah,
1: well, that's that's what this is. Mm -hmm. Um, In Cortez's Chronicles, when he came through Mexico, he talked about a place that was a major Maya trading center and it was on a river. And he was just so impressed with it. And it was called Itzumkanak. Love those little Maya names, man. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that he talked about is that in order to get into the city across the river, the Maya had cut down one tree and felled it and it went from one side of the river to the other. And that's how he and his men and, and the Maya went back and forth between uh, uh, each side of the river. I got involved in a, <clears throat> an expedition to, to do some diving uh, with the Mexican government, INA, which is the uh, National Institute for Anth- Anthropology and History, uh, on, the, on the site to see if we could find where that crossing might have been. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this is a very slow moving river, so uh, there's not a lot of current. And the deepest point that we found in the river was like 26 feet, so it wasn't very deep at all. And we were using a surface air supply, uh, which was a a brownie third lung, uh, because you can go down to easily one atmosphere with that, which is 33 feet. and so we were doing an uh, underwater ex, ex, uh, exploration of this, this site to try and see if we could find this bridge thing. Well, one of the things that kind of upset me is, I, in my mind, we were looking in the wrong place. Yeah, the river was too wide. The river um, went in from the city into a marsh. And so there would be no big trees there anyway. But be that as it may we're working with the Mexican government and they're not really calling the shots, but they're making strong hints. (laughs) So we started diving and, um, what we found, and this is where the, the significance comes in is that the river had changed course. And so it had encroached on, on the city over the hundreds of years that since Cortez wrote his, his piece. And in 12, 15 feet of water, we found submerged uh, platforms, carved stone platforms. And we found uh, remnants of um, effigy vases that were used in ritual purposes. And so we were able to bring this to the attention of, of the Mexican government. And they were, now they had no idea. And we started finding more and more. And one of the the biggest things that we found was the encroachment of the river had covered up what was a carved wharf area or stone-faced wharf area that was pretty, pretty big. And it was about four or five feet underwater. And there was carved stones. And then there was a step down. And there was another carved stone down into like four or five more feet of water and then into the mud and it just so happened that that area lined up perfectly with the main thoroughfare going through the city towards the pyramids through the through the uh, the ruins and at that site, we found pottery that was not at all uh, part of the local uh, culture. It was definitely imported from different places and that's the thing that the Mexican government got really excited about because nobody really knew where the site of Itzum Kanak was. And so from what the pottery that we found and the wharf and then the platform and used for ritual purposes, um, they were able to put together all the, the, the pieces and, and basically say, and it is now documented, that that site that we dove on and that we helped recover this stuff is the site that was talked about in Cortez's Chronicles It's some Canuck. And so our finds there, I found a beautiful, and I almost hate to say this, a Flint spear point that was about eight to 10 inches long. Hmm. Perfect. I mean, and I was walking through the mud along the bank of the river and I just happened to step down. As I stepped down, I looked and the mud was, you know, three or four inches deep. I mean, it was, right. and here's this spear point. And I picked it up and I was like, oh my God, look at it. And unfortunate, well, not unfortunately, I was walking with the, the Mexican archeologist that was sent to work with us on the site. And it was one of the significant discoveries that we made. Yeah, and of course yeah. I had to say, oh, here you go. Right right, right, right. sure, take it. Yeah, but you didn't uh, stab so him with it and it, run off into, into the jungle like you, a true no, treasure but, hunter. <laughs> uh, you won't believe the things that ran through my head when I'm pulling it. Um, yeah, that's funny. But it was it was very that was very rewarding because that was reported in National Geographic, that's and our awesome. discoveries were reported. The things that we found, the regional director of Ena, which is the Institute of National Anthropology and History, came out to visit us, saw what we found, asked if we would bring what we found back to Campeche, which is the uh, regional headquarters uh, for INA. Um, and this particular site, we had to travel four hours up a river to get to it. There, is, there was no way to uh, get to it. There were no roads or anything. So There was a four-hour river trip to get up to the site and they asked if we, when we came back, if we would bring it to uh, the, re- the regional office in Campeche, we did that, they thanked us profusely, immediately uh, packaged it up, and flew it to Mexico City so in my mind, that was treasure that was a, that is that was a, you know yeah, and it's amazing absolutely.
0: that they, they didn't know where the city was, they wanted to find the crossing, and in looking for the crossing, they found the city
1: that's exactly right yeah. And, yeah. Um, they, they kind of had an idea because um uh, the the place is a plains it's a uh, they they raise cattle there so it's a grazing area and so there's not a lot of vegetation but if you look out across the plain there are these humps you know with mm. covered with grass well guess what folks those are all pyramids those are all platforms that at one time were built by the maya and they've uncovered them and now it now it's a tourist area they built a road in since I've been down there and you know, you can go find it on the internet. Um, hmm. and it's, it's become a, a big thing, but the, our, our expedition helped solidify the fact that it was the city that was mentioned in Cortez's Chronicles.
3: Yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's
1: cool. Yeah.
2: That's Indiana Jones stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it, totally it, is. It, it kind of felt that way.
0: Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, uh, books. Um, Sunken Treasure, Lost Worlds, and Sunken Treasure Revelations, uh, which is the first one,
1: revela- uh, Lost Worlds is the first Lost one. Lost Worlds, right? Sunken Treasure, Lost- Actually, it's Actually, it's a three-part trilogy, um, spoiler, um, and you really need to read all three books, um, but they build on one another, and um, there's a, a ton of accurate historical and archaeological research that has gone into all the books. Now, so these are, said, these are novels, but they're sort of uh, historical fiction adventure. Yes, they are novels, and, and yes, they are fiction, but there's an awful lot of history in them that is accurate hmm. and hmm. a lot of archaeology that is, it is accurate. Um, but since they're novels, there does come that caveat you know, it's a suspension of disbelief. Of course. Because sure. <laughs> what I have done is that I have tied really three main areas of interest to me, which are um, the treasure aspect, um, civilizations in the Americas, and space. I mean, my dad was with the Apollo program and I grew up you know, for a long time with the Apollo program. And I am a firm believer that we are not the only, you know, sentient uh, planet in the, in the world, in the universe, that is. I Um, I don't see how it's possible that we are. I have, I have, I have seen things during my time when I lived in New Mexico, Mm -hmm. and then my time in the military that convinced me, you know, that there's something out there, Mm -hmm. and um, so yeah, I kind of tied in maybe a little extraterrestrial, pre-civilization, ancient, ancient history. Kind of stuff in there, but uh, Excellent. sounds right up at my alley. Frankly, you know, yeah. it's got a little bit of everything that I'm interested in too. I'm, you know? I'm, I'm, I am currently in the culminating book. I'm in just six chapters into book three, which will be the last book of the trilogy. Um, and this is where it's going to really get. Yeah, put on your
3: Wait, put on told- your foil
1: hat and and and, and get your spacesuit out because. <laughs> Um, without giving anything away,
0: can you give us a basic plot rundown, uh, you know, the, a dust cover
1: version of what these are about? Um, uh, well, book one talks about a group of guys, some friends that get together and decide they want to form a treasure hunting company in Florida.
3: Mm-hmm. Sounds right. right. Yeah, it does. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and then they find out all the roadblocks that are in the way of doing that And then they also say, well, you know, screw it. We're, you know, we're, we're not going to do it. But then a piece of information comes their way and it's a, whoa, piece of information that leads them into actually finding treasure, but more than that, something else, which then leads them into a trip to Ecuador and a search for what has been called the lost golden library or the, the metal library, um, which uh, Von Doniken wrote about, but was being recorded much before he wrote about it uh, as being a library that was uh, put in place and hidden by a very advanced civilization. True. I don't know. No, you know but is that are, synonymous with El Dorado? or Well, actually, it, it's kind of different because El Dorado is a city of gold. Right. You know, okay. this is a, a library that was put together of, of information. I see. And, and, and maybe something else. We don't know. You have to read book three to find out. But oh,
3: anyway.
1: right. <laughs> um, I like it. <laughs> so I, I, I tied all those together, and, and I, I, I tried to weave a tapestry that number 1 if you're interested in archaeology or history at all it would keep you interested if you're interested in mysteries or intrigue it's going to keep you interested and if you're interested in possibly what may have come before us who you know did somebody help our our ancient civilizations build the pyramids or their cities or you know, help them discover some of the, the things that we know and scratch our heads about. You know, wow, how did they figure that out? Right. Um, so that's like I said, it's a it's a three book series, and uh, I'm going to wrap it up and wrap this part of it up in book three. But since I've started writing book three, um, the team, uh, the company that was formed in the book is called Risky Business. Go oh. figure. Treasure hunting, diving, you know, it's risky. And trying to make money off of it would be a business. Well, the Risky Business Chronicles are going to cover more than these three books. I these see. This, are arc gonna, is, this arc is one of the adventures. It, sure. Yeah. You know, you can, you can live vicariously, you know, from the comfort of your armchair if you want. Um, that is how I want. <laughs> I tell that, you that's our speed. <laughs> my my days, my days of adventuring and putting myself at risk and getting out there are pretty much over. Mm-hmm. So, I'm finding this is a is a uh, a great outlet. Now, I never ever ever dreamed that I would write a book ever. Um when I was in my doctoral program and I was writing my dissertation, I swore I would never write anything again if I ever got that thing finished. <laughs> I mean, um, and I, and I meant it. I, it was, it was, harsh, but as things happen, I did. And I finished you took it took some time to recover. It did. Yeah. I, and <laughs> I, 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 wasn't a 12 step program, but it was a recovery program. And you know, um, I, I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you I'm, as,
0: as my body has gotten older. I start to ask myself, why did I collect all these stories if I'm not going to write them down? You know, I mean, and you well, were definitely out there collecting stories
1: uh, and, through and, your existence and hunting. Well, and 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 yeah, that's what happened. Um, I I was I was able to, and this story took probably fifteen seventeen years to come together in my mind, and I finally. At at one point, once I retired, I said, you know, what, you know, if I'm ever going to do anything with this, I might as well put it on paper or, or put it down. And um, I am not a writer. I, I don't have an English degree. I don't have. I've never taken a creative writing class. Um, I didn't know the first thing about writing a book, other than you sit down, and you start typing. So
3: that's pretty that's much
1: it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, that I, I like to it. think so, but let me tell you what, that's not the case. <laughs> um, it's been an a, a unbelievable learning experience for me, but um, I've been lucky, and I've met some people that have helped me out a little bit, and so I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about what's, what's going on and, and kind of the direction that, that I'm headed with this, and it's fun. It's a hell of a yeah. lot more fun than my dissertation was, let me tell you. <laughs> they don't know. I, yes, I can imagine dissertation, no matter what the topic is, does not sound fun. No, it, it, was, a, it was a grueling process, but it was a process. Right. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned uh, earlier is you were talking about uh, sunken cities mm-hmm. and hidden cities. Um, I think the, a couple of things have happened in the last, say, five to seven years that have really, really changed the world in terms of, uh, discovery and archaeology, um, oh. which leads us to find uh, hidden cities, and one of them is the uh, creation of lidar, which is the new uh, ah, laser yes. uh, laser system that allows you to shoot a laser beam thousands of times over an area from the air and then use an algorithm in a, in a computer program that picks up the reflected uh, laser and then the laser that actually touches the ground and remove the reflected laser. And so you can actually see what the contours of the land are.
0: And, yeah, I, I, uh, I rented an office once that uh, was next door to a company that <clears throat> in Northern California flew uh, drones like military drones style drones uh over forest land in order to map the terrain for easier firefighting with this stuff absolutely and And, and you showed us this crazy it looked like a predator drone and everything i don't know It was crazy well they
1: and and they've got them they got them for drones they you can take them the 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 -the run-of-the-mill treasure hunter can buy one now the price has come down so much and what they do is amazing and the one section that i know of um and i worked with the guatemalan government. Uh, at one point in time on um, trying to get some filming permits to go down there and and document some of the Maya sites down there. But just recently, an aircraft flew over as part of the mapping, the LIDAR mapping program down there, an area that they knew there were pyramids and the Maya civilization had been there. And they had estimated that there was probably 75 to 100,000 people that had lived there. They flew over and mapped it with LiDAR, and all of a sudden, this huge, huge city complex came up with uh, what are called sock bays, which are sacred roads, l- going out and linking to other sites in the jungle. And they've upped it to over a million people in that area. So, you know, it, What we talked earlier, uh, technology is really opening the door to. Um, finding the unknown, helping us learn more about prehistory or our history, and then making new new decisions. Textbooks are having to be written, rewritten because of what we're finding out. The risk yeah. of sounding flippant, I'm very
0: interested on how a million people live in the jungle in one city without toilets.
1: Well, actually, you know? I think they they had a sewage system. Really, I think that's one of the things that I that yeah. I read. And most of the pre-Columbian cultures, whether they're in Peru, uh, Inca, whether they're in the Central American area, or they're in Mexico, most of them had running water in their cities. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, I've, I read I've some, their, some stuff on that. Yeah, yeah that yeah.
2: Their, their cities were actually incredibly advanced. Like quite, in comparison to the, yeah. to the European yeah. people yeah, see, that's who what coming were coming right. there. i like, whoa, what?
1: You know, how do they do all this? Here, here's a Stone Age group of people that are much more advanced than we thought that they were.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I saw one of them uncovering uh, basically like a village built up a mountain, and the top of the mountain had been carved out to create a cistern that held water and the water would run down. And basically it was a class system that rich people lived up by the clean water and it got poorer and poorer as the people lived down by that. <laughs> yeah. By the uh, less yes. clean water. Uh, they
2: call that trickle down economics.
0: <laughs> yeah, apparently, but yeah. Uh, is, is that surprising? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's um, not, but it was really just amazing. I'm just all, how do you carve out a cistern that will save, hold and rewater enough
1: people throughout an entire year? That's great. In the Yucatan peninsula. Um, it's basically much like Florida because it's mostly limestone. Um, and they had, uh, carved cisterns basically where they would catch rainwater or they would divert water from the aquifer. If they could get down to it, Their cenotes and have that run into the cities. Mm -hmm. Um, I almost fell into a, one of the cisterns when I was down there tromping through one of the areas, and yeah. uh, luckily, by I had a, a walking stick, and I put it in front of me before I took a step, and the stick kept going, and I went whoa! And when we covered the uncovered the brush, here was a perfectly round opening, and when we have got lights down in there, smooth as silk uh, sides, and then we started finding more of them at this site, and mm. that's where they stored their water. Wild, yeah, it's wild. All right, well, we're coming up on the end here. Uh,
0: I'm pretty wrapped up into this. I want to ask you if you ever had malaria. There's a lot of stuff that I want to ask you. uh, (laughs) We're we're at the end here. So, uh, you know, where's the best place for people to uh, find out more about you? Of course, there's hepaldridge.com. And I saw that you can buy your book on Amazon. Um, What's the? I know that authors sometimes have preferred places for people to buy their books. Do you prefer them buy it off of Amazon or... How do you want it, that
1: to go? It's fine. They can buy it off of Amazon or they can, they can buy it directly from me um, either way. Um, the only thing is if you buy it for me, guess what? I'll, I'll put my name in it for you. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, who, Whoopie do. But it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's one of these things I, I'm, I, and once again, writing books, I, is, it's so new to me and I'm still learning as I go and it's so much fun. Um, you know, I'm getting fan mail you know, what's that all about?
3: (laughs) Right. I never
1: never dreamed. And, and people are are saying, you know, would you please sign, you know, can I buy a book from you? Would you please sign it for me? Absolutely. I, you know, I, I I love it. I can, I consider that a privilege. Thank you very much. You know, when you, when you do that, but. What is that all about? I have a radio show. I don't get fan mail.
3: mm, Uh, uh, (laughs)
1: You need to try a little bit harder,
0: Chauncey.
2: It's only because people hate us, Chauncey. (laughs) I I wouldn't worry about it.
0: I just, I do get fan mail. I just didn't want Kara to know. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so you've been Anything listening best. to Hep Aldridge here <laughs> on Radio Wasteland, his website, hepaldridge.com, his book, Sunken Treasure the Lost World and Sunken Tre- Treasure Revelations, and a third to the trilogy coming up. Do we got a title for that one yet? I'm working on it. Working on a title for the third one. Order yes. it from his website if you want an autograph. Order it from Amazon if you just want to spend the money. And, and they uh, have the Kindle version. Or the Kindle version, exactly. Right. All right. You've been listening to Hep Aldred here on Radio Wasteland. Thank you, Hep.
1: My pleasure.